And it's that sharing that allows a community to go from a group of people talking to each other to a group of people who are co-creating knowledge. Welcome to Participate. I'm Mike Washburn. And I'm Dr. Julie Kane. On the podcast, a deep dive into the impact communities of practice can have. We'll talk impact on practice and the co-creation of knowledge with Julie, and then get into the weeds of it with Participate CEO, Mark Otter. So Julie. Mike. That is a fancy word that we need you to unpack for us. The co-creation of knowledge. I'd love for you to talk to our listeners a little bit about what that means specifically, and then talk a little bit about how that co-creation of knowledge can translate to impacts on practice. Okay, Mike, thank you for asking about this. It's one of my passion subjects. And also, I think this is something you probably know, not only intuitively, but because of your background as a teacher. So the co-construction of knowledge are really kind of derives from social learning theories that we talk a lot about at Participate when we get into the weeds of the theory that drives a lot of our development of the platform and also how we work with partners, particularly our instructional designers. And it comes from Vygotskyan theory and Deweyan theory of social learning. And that really the idea is that we just do not learn in a silo. We learn together and that we constantly learn and bat off each other and co-construct as we go. So instead of a transmission model, and there, these, were, these are really big kind of conflicts, not conflicts, but a lot of um, debate within education theory around how kids learn, how adults learn. So when you were thinking about setting up your classroom, when you were a teacher, was it really about the kids in the class co-creating together, co-creating the knowledge, or was it a transmission model where they're empty so it's that banking model of education of Paulo Freire also, where you're just assuming an empty vessel and the teacher kind of deposits the information in, and then the learner sort of integrates that in over time, or are kids sort of coming A with prior knowledge, mm-hmm. which they always do, every human has it, working off with their peers and having that sort of help maybe with an expert when they're stuck, but essentially that co-construction understands the social context of learning. And that's what we're really trying to build within communities of practice. So as people do the practice, and really we're going to talk today about that capital P of the COP, um, what does that look like? How does that change the way people think about their work, think about what they came into that community doing and knowing, and how are they ultimately changed by the collaboration and the practice within that community? And then how does that sort of cycle back into their own practice, literally changing the way that they think about things? And I think we saw a lot of that or heard a lot about that with our conversation with Andy Tag in our prior episode with Don't Forget the Bubbles, right? They are coming together and really making new knowledge just right in that moment And they're synthesizing expert material, but they're also synthesizing their experience. So I think for both Vygotsky and Dewey, it was this understanding that learning doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens through human experience. And that, you know, core to human experience is our social interaction with others. 
you know what's amazing to me is is that you're dead on with the idea that we a lot of us anyways especially educators and people in education do this stuff some of this stuff naturally Mm -hmm. and we just haven't put terms to it and haven't formalized it and made an effort to do it consistently as part of our lifestyle of learning our, our continuous learning but it is a natural thing this idea that you come with knowledge you share that information that knowledge with others you learn from the other people that you're sharing with because they came with knowledge and then you work together to 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 convert that into an impact in some way shape or form and then send that back out into the worlds that you came from it is quite something i really enjoy this part of our conversations because it's taking um, a lot of the things that we do normally and take for granted and putting kind of almost like putting the, the face to the name sort of thing um, because, you know, we're, we're attaching, you know, what we already know to the formalized structure around it. Right. Right. And I think for educators in particular, there are, there are those that really just, it is that natural thing that they sort of engage kids. They give kids agency. We hear that all the time. And again, they're almost doing that intuitively, just as you say, but that's where you really develop expertise in any profession is when you're sort of stepping back and it's like, oh, this is actually, I actually structured this. I actually scaffolded this. I am giving the learner voice in this or my community members voice in this. And I'm Mm -hmm. allowing sort of that conversation to take place, allowing it in and changing my practice in the, as we go. So we're going to take a little bit of a deeper dive into this uh, with our guests on this episode. When we come back, our conversation with Participate's CEO, Mark Otter, stay with us. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. He's the CEO of Participate, and I don't think we could talk to someone better about this idea of impact on practice than our next guest. Welcome to the Participate podcast, Mark Otter. Thanks for having me. Good to be here, Dr. Kane and Dr. Mike. <laughs> Welcome, Mark. So we talk a lot on this podcast and at Participate about how Different sectors and organizations are using communities of practice, but today we wanted to dive a little deeper into the practice part of communities of practice. So Mark, can you start out by sharing why practice is so integral to a community of practice? Sure thing. Um, back in another lifetime, I was uh, teaching, teaching mathematics and science in uh, London for a few years. And they had something there called Ron Seal, which is like a sealant. And the commercial for Ron Seal was, it does exactly what it says on the tin. Right? Like it does exactly what it says on the box. And I think when you talk about communities of practice, I mean, the practice is kind of baked, baked right into the name of communities of practice. And, you know, it's one of the three critical parts um, of that model. And so, you know, I think that from our perspective, when we were first starting to look at different types of models that we would use to support our programs at our former company, um, we really did see the need to impact the practice of, of the teachers that we were working with. And our thinking was that if you could 
if you could change their practices, hopefully improve their practices, then you would see that downstream impact on student learning. And once we made that decision that the lever that we could could really impact directly was, was uh, on teacher practice, it made uh, total sense for us then at that point to choose communities of practice as a model for us. So Mark, since we've talked about this a lot, about the idea of the practices within a community and a lot of ways, what you talked about with teachers, how do you capture that evidence when they're having impact on their own practice, impact on student learning? And this kind of flows right into our theory of change, our theory of impact, and how that really demonstrates the learning and impact on practice within a community. So can you tell us your thinking about that and how communities of practice support that, that impact on practice? Sure. I'm going to just take that in two different pieces. One, we'll talk about that that theory of change um, and the evolution of that. And then two, we can talk about how that really actually nicely ties into the community of practice piece. But, um, you know, that that theory of change that we we first came up with, and, and then, you know, from a theory of change standpoint, this is really a sim- super simplification. But at the same time, we were trying to communicate something to people that was relatively new for them. And we thought simplifying as much as possible really what is a a complex interaction was important but we had this idea that if through learning experiences you could impact practice if you could change behavior then what you would see was you know a downstream impact on student learning at the time and so there's a couple pieces that we left out of that uh, and i would like to say purposefully but it wasn't we had created a theory of impact or a theory of change that was very linear in nature. And I think one of the most important pieces that we've learned since that time is the sharing back of what it is that you've learned. So we had this very linear, you do A, it causes B, which causes C, and it just kind of dropped off. And what we've realized over the years is that the critical piece is after the impact has occurred is reflection, which we knew, but also sharing as part of that reflection. And it's that sharing that allows a community to go from a group of people talking to each other to a group of people who are co-creating knowledge, who are building something upon the shoulders of something that was built earlier. And, And that was really a critical idea for us to come to because again, it then strengthened the idea that the community of practice was the ideal fit. And the second thing that I'll bring up there was you touched on capturing that evidence. So we had initially started with, you know, the creation of a product that would demonstrate a change in practice and then a reflection upon how it went when it was put into practice. Then you pull that back into sharing. And the question then becomes, how do you capture that? And fortuitously, is that maybe the right word, or it was right at the same time we were working on digital badging and the digital media learning competition that was going on in that time. And the digital badge piece pointed us uh, kind of in two directions that really strengthened um, our ability to implement the community of practice model within this context. One is the open badge infrastructure is an ideal vehicle for capturing non-traditional evidence of learning and impact on practice because it's essentially a digital container in which you can put anything in you could put in whether it was artifacts that were being created audio files video files 
uh, audio reflections, that could all be packaged inside the digital badge, which made it the ideal tool for capturing practice in the community. But then it also got us thinking about building trusted environments. And um, we had tied the digital badge idea to this idea of building trust as well. Because you know, some of the early days of digital badging, you know, one of the ideas that was floated around was the ability to have portable reputation. And reputation building is an important part of establishing trust inside of a community. Um, and so if you think about uh, Amazon, the ability to rate a product, ability to rate a, uh, a seller, right? Like those are indicators of trust. And one of the things that we had thought through was if I had left the Amazon platform and went to another platform, I'm starting from scratch again to establish trust. So we began to think of digital badges as a way to make portable the trust that is being built. So you have these two, two pieces. One is trust building. Two is capturing evidence of learning and practice in this single vehicle, which is the digital badge. So, you know, marrying digital badging to the idea of communities of practice really seemed, um, I think I'm not supposed to say the chocolate and peanut butter moment, but it just kind of feels like the chocolate and peanut butter moment for us. Speaking of chocolate and peanut butter moments, let's listen to a clip of you actually taking a deeper dive into how we've been approaching badging, how we think about it within a community of practice. We have been a badge issuer for um, for you know multiple years, but um, we've never seen ourselves as a badging platform. We've always seen badges as this. I think I you know we put an article out about a really I can this amazing container like a that in which you can put rich evidence of learning, right? Regardless of its size or shape. And so when I think about container, I'm thinking about uh, the intermodal container that you put onto ships. Like think back to the King Kong movies, like when you were putting pallets of stuff onto ships, the pallets were all different shapes. And um, you can never really tell how much you could fit onto a ship and then how you're gonna get it off the ship. And then someone came along in like the 50s and said, let's put these in a standardized container so a truck can get it to the ship you put whatever you can fit into the container, put a manifest on the door telling you what's in the container, but then you know how many containers you can fit on the ship. And when, it, when the ship arrives at the dock, the truck that's picking it up is set up to pick up that container, right? To me, in my mind, that's a digital badge, right? It's, it in itself is not gamification. In itself is not motivation. It is this rich version of traditional certificates or transcripts where you just never really knew how some people, um, the work that people did, but instead you could pack it into this container. There was a, a device on the end of it that would allow you to open it up and see that evidence, but that evidence could be any sort of evidence of learning. And I think that's what's been missing. Yes, that clip really, to me, nails exactly why badging has such a potentially powerful and effective role within a community of practice, that ability to really capture diverse evidences of learning. That's awesome. So, Mark, we've been lucky to talk on this podcast to a number of our our partners and folks that we work with. I think back to our very first episode with um, Dr. Margaret Honey from the New York Hall of Science, and a number of other groups. Jassy Ross from LA Works comes to mind as well. But I'm curious, 
what does this look like when it's done right? What are some of the examples that you can think of off the top of your head where this impact on practice is being nailed? You know, you just mentioned two fantastic organizations that uh, I'm a huge fan of. But I'm going to go off platform for the initial uh, example, because this one is the the example from a, a Harvard Business Review article in, I think, 2000 or 2001 that really stuck with me, which was this idea of a, of a community of practice for Xerox repair people. And in that community of practice, you have thousands of people who are tasked with maintaining you know, these Xerox machines, photocopier machines. There's a whole generation. My, my kids will never know what a Xerox machine is. Um, but, you know, you had this army of folks, and they would have a baseline set of training, but then you would go out into um, into the workplaces where the machines would break and realize, like, oh, somebody sat on the machine. Somebody put a sandwich to the machine. There was this multitude of ways in which a machine could be broken that were not captured in the manual. And the, the beauty of a community of practices is that these repair people could then take those examples back into the workplace and share them with the other repair people. And so in that case, what does impact and practice look like? It looks like a machine that's functioning, right? It's a, it's a great example of baseline learning, put it into practice, take it back, share it, and now you're building upon the shoulders of that original, um, of that original training piece. I think that's incredibly, incredibly powerful now, especially in this, um, this COVID environment that we're, that we're in because the learning environments for so many organizations have taken on that dynamic quality that you know the Xerox repair people were feeling before. I think about uh, UNC uh, University system here in North Carolina. If you are a professor, what does it mean to be teaching in this environment? Well, you know your your initial initially what you would try to do is build a course that would teach people how to teach during the time of COVID. Well, who knows what it's like to teach during the time of COVID. It's critical that you have this baseline set of information for folks, but then they're going to put it in practice and you need to provide the channels for them to take it back and share it with the other professors in that system. That's how you create a learning environment that is dynamic um, in a way that the, that, that the ecosystem which you're teaching is dynamic. Uh, we will see that you plan to teach face-to-face -face on Monday and UNC will beat Duke on Saturday and 100,000 students will go into the street on Saturday night and guess what? You're not teaching face-to-face -face on Monday. There's no, there's no course that you build in July that addresses that. And so I think there's a great, there's a great example of, of a community of practice in which you're starting with a baseline level of knowledge, put it into practice, and then continue to build upon it. Your, your Xerox repair people, they're getting a baseline training on how to repair a Xerox machine, and they're going into the field. The measure of success with regards to practice is the machine working, and they're coming back and sharing how they did it. And then that becomes part of the knowledge going forward. And I think that's where we saw that initial you know, the initial theory of change that we put together, which was linear in nature, mm -hmm. is not. It's actually a series of spirals. It's a, it's, it's a loops. It's a roller coaster of right. loops that, that continue along. Um, yeah, so I think, I think there's great examples um, in, in, that are out there of people who have been using community, communities of practice effectively for a long period of time. 
I think what is different now is the introduction of distance between people, mm -hmm. right? Of moving into an online environment um, means that we don't necessarily have a tool set that was designed to accommodate communities of practice. I mean, the tool set for a community of practice inside of, uh, of uh, your organization previously was like the lunchroom. Right. But once you take that away, then it's the, the design of a, of a specific set of tools to support communities practice. So Mark, you might have answered this question in your last answer, which is around the urgency of this and the practice of this. Like, why are we capturing? Why is it so important to capture that impact on practice? And I think, Mike, we've talked a little bit about it in our last podcast with Andy from Don't Forget the Bubbles about the urgency that healthcare professionals have particularly in COVID, where they need to kind of react really fast. They need to learn really fast. They need to put this into practice really fast. But outside of that, where do you think that urgency is even beyond sort of the healthcare professionals? Why, are, are, why is this impact on practice so important right now? You know, I think we're in a place now where people have a lot of additional resources. They don't have a lot of additional time, both to uh, try to solve their problems. There's not a, a, a whole lot of spare money floating around uh, in order to solve problems. And, and what you don't want to have is valuable time and resources going into something that is probably or most likely not going to be effective. So I think that's, that's my concern from like why now is we need a model that works. Um, we talk about it a lot uh, internally where you know, we had seen the convergence of online learning and community a number of years ago, um, and we have seen that sped up because of the nature of what has happened over the last 12 months. So what I would hate to see happen is these valuable resources then be put into something that is probably not going to, not going to help us. Um, I think as well what you're starting to see and we have been seeing for a while, is folks beginning to understand that there are skills that are required going forward that can be acquired in non-traditional ways. There are things that are going to be required of people in the workforce that did not require you going into debt to get a degree to achieve and do not require you taking four years off of work to get. And so I think there's this opportunity now for us to rethink how people um, gain those skills, how people gain those competencies. So uh, I think just that A, there is an immediate need, B, there's an opportunity to reset. And I think that we have kind of reached the nexus of, of where we can really truly make a change to how people have been doing things for a while. It's awesome. Mark, is there anything else you'd like to share about your thoughts on impact on practice? I think, you know, I'm obviously a big, big believer in it. And it feels like more than just a small group of people have come to realize that communities of practice is really um, a, an important, effective tool to be used uh, for professional learning going forward. I think in the past, what has happened is that it's been really difficult to do, especially to do online. And I think there's a, uh, obviously, I think we've built a tool that does a great job of, of um, supporting communities of practice, but not just us. I think a lot of organizations are building tools or parts of the toolkit 
to allow folks to build their own communities of practice. And so what I would say is, before you build a course, look into communities of practice, right? Before you build a MOOC, look into communities of practice. The research shows it's effective. There's tools and there's people out there to help you. And um, I think it's the way things are going. Thank you for joining us on the podcast, Mark. This is great. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Appreciate you all having me on here. Take care. Thanks for listening to Participate. My name is Dr. Julie Kane. My co-host is Mike Washburn, and we don't do this podcast alone. The Participate podcast team includes production by Jane Violette and Becky Latoff, with editing and music by Aaron Kane. Want to get in touch with us? Check out our website at participate.com. You can tweet us at participate. Mike can be found on Twitter at Mr. Washburn, and I can be found on Twitter at Julie Kane. If you're enjoying the show and think others would too, we would be thrilled if you shared it with them. Please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or in Google Podcasts. When you leave a rating, it gives our rankings a boost. This helps others discover the show. Thanks as always for listening. Until next time.